Okay, amazing. And Nate's going to be sharing with us this evening, but just a few exciting things. So as Paula and I were saying, was it the end of last year, Paula, looking at the Fusion series, eh? Well, no, it was this year. This year. Beginning of this year. We got the privilege to go out to the Karoo for three days and just dream and pray and plan around the Ephesian series. So we are super pumped for it. And the really cool thing when you do that is that the Lord reveals some really cool ideas, like doing a special during a series like this. We haven't really had this before. And there's a few plotted throughout the series, which is exciting. So for the next year, we'll have a few of these around specific special interest topics coming up, which is super exciting. And uh, one like tonight, which is really cool. Uh, and so that's something to look forward to in the Ephesians series as we go forward. And then another really cool thing about this is we get to study the word together this evening, right? So you'll see in the format of, of how it's going to be facilitated, Nate will share for a bit, and then he's going to lead us through, I think it's four kind of different questions we'll discuss together in smaller groups, and then Nate will share after each one of those, and then a bit at the end. Uh, and then I suppose we'll might close with a more of a Q&A type session. I'm not sure how, how it'll go and what time will be. Uh, but it's just really exciting. So bro, I'm going to welcome you up to yeah. share with us. And um, yeah, let's get engaged together, uh, which is really exciting. We're not just here only to listen, but actually to participate. I do want to say, though, there's a really important scripture. Um, it's in the Bible, believe it or not. Um, I think it's John 1.14. No, it can't be. Yes, it is. John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. For we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, now listen to this, this is the key line, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so as we come this evening, we're going to be grappling around a specific truth. But we need to know that we don't not only call to be truth people, we also call to be gracious people. And so we need to do that and recognize that in the room this evening. Each of us have been on different journeys as we walked with Jesus, different levels of maturity. Some people don't, in this room might not even have an idea of what predestination is. They've heard about it how many times in Christianese and church circles, like, what is this thing? And we need to accept that and we, and we need to acknowledge that in the room. Tonight. Some of us might have been walking journeys. It might have been a huge stumbling block in us, our faith at some point, this whole idea. We just need to know there's different flavors, there's different maturity levels, there's different experience in the room this evening, and we just need to have grace for that. So can I ask that we do that the same thing in the room, especially if we've been walking a bit longer and we've grappled with things. Let's have grace for one another and learn together. That's going to be a far richer experience for everyone as we do that. Uh, so uh, on that note, can I hand over to you? Cool. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, I was hoping there would be five people here, so it would be a little bit less stressful. Um, funnily enough, I was actually praying over lunchtime, and then it clicked. I was like, no, but I'm a Calvinist, so it doesn't matter whether I prep a lot or prep a little bit. God's sovereign, so the same thing's going to happen. Um, cool. So, this evening we are approaching uh, kind of a biblical doctrine, which has been the focus, or part of the focus, of one of the biggest debates that uh, the church in the history has faced, um, and this is predestination. And it sounds like a little bit of a funny word, but if you break it out into its roots, it basically means pre, to pre, to predetermine, and destination, to predetermine where someone was going to go. That's predestination. So um, just a little kind of brief historical background to this. Um, I would argue that some of the kind of initial rumblings of these ideas um, started around 400 AD with a guy called St. Augustine, uh, or St. Augustine, and um, that was with Augustinianism, and there were two other kind of movements called Pelagianism and Semi-Pelagianism, and um, I'm 
I'll mention basic the basic discussion, which during that time was actually the basically man's role in salvation. What role does man play in salvation? That was their kind of debate and discussion. Um, but I think it's important to mention this because I think it formulates some of the basis for how the discussion progressed and how uh, the Reformation happened and the discussion that we are having tonight. So the basic premise of these, um, St. Augustine believed that it was all of grace, that man is totally depraved. So in and of himself, man has nothing that he can offer to God, not even the ability to respond in faith that God has to um, sovereignly and graciously rescue him. Um, Pelagianism, basically the premise there was that man actually in and of himself had the ability to live a righteous life and actually get to heaven without God at all, without the grace, grace of God at all. Um, so that was quite quickly kind of debunked in the church. Um, but then there was semi-Pelagianism, which, uh, which, uh, whose premise was basically that man um, needs the grace of God. So the grace of God is, necess- is, is necessary for faith. Um, but that's left within him is the ability to respond. So these ideas might sound a little foreign and a little strange at the moment, but I think you'll see once we kind of get deeper into it um, that they make sense. So, um, and this discussion still to today, you know, the top biblical scholars of the day are still debating this quite hotly. You know, it's like, been, uh, what is it now, 1,600 years since St. Augustine, and we haven't really agreed. Um, so it's not going to happen tonight, but in half an hour, it's definitely not going to happen. Um, and these are guys like R.C. Sproul, John Piper, David Pawson, or uh, Dr. Norman Geisler. Um, so what I also want to say is that um, while we will only be kind of skating over the the depth of this issue, I'm really praying that it will be meaningful and that there will be moments in our hearts where God is saying this is something that's truthful and he will fill our hearts with with faith. I also want to note that I'm in this kind of painting with a very broad brush and there are nuances to these different views. So there might be some of you out there who will poke holes in all of my points because you see that I'm doing this. Um, But I think the reason that I'm doing this uh, is for, this, for the sake of tonight, is to kind of earmark the dominant perspectives and, in my view, the dominant perspectives of kind of everyday Christians. Not necessarily someone who has a PhD and they're going to throw out all the different details of the topic, but someone who's just walking with God and this is kind of the conviction they have, whether they know it or not. Um, so I think that's going to be helpful for us. I also want to clarify that I'm definitely not an expert on the issue. Um, There was some false advertising (laughs) on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, I've just done some research into it, so I hope it will be helpful. But I'm really praying ultimately that God's going to speak through his word in our discussion times together. And I want to reiterate what Bates is saying. The, The topic demands to be approached with humility and grace. So I want to really exhort us, like above all else, to be gracious and kind to one another as we discuss it. Um, And I want to encourage us to come with our hearts open. Often with these ideas, we come with our our current understanding and we almost say, Lord, you've got to now fit into this and you've got to prove to me that you're still good or you're still loving within this wall that I've created of my understanding. Um, 
but we really need to come open-heartedly and say, Lord, shift what you need to shift. Change my heart if you need to change my heart. I'm not going to come with my own preconceived ideas. And then second last note, um, just as we start, is that this is not a salvation issue. I don't believe this is a salvation issue. Um, I believe that salvation is by grace through faith, and that our salvation is not dependent on the means by which that faith happens. That, that's my perspective. So as we discuss this tonight, we're not saying that these different perspectives are going to mean you're saved or you're not saved. Actually, people on very different sides of this conversation can walk closely with one another um, in, a, in a Christian life. So, And then I really want to ask you that if you struggle with these ideas, please reach out to us. Um, I've struggled with it, and um, I know Mandy's really struggled with it, so I really want to ask you, don't feel like this hits you and suddenly you're doubting who God is, you're doubting his goodness, you're doubting his love, um, and then you're suffering alone. But actually just come and speak to us and we can um, help you through that. Cool. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into Ephesians 1. Father God, we thank you for this evening. Uh, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Father, we thank you just for the opportunity tonight to speak about you. Father God, I pray that you would remind us, King, that we are not um, holding you out as some object to, to be discussed and to be critiqued and to be evaluated, Father, but that you are our God and we sit under your word humbly, ready to receive, King. Amen. Amen. Cool. So we're going straight into Ephesians 1, first of all. So just a little bit of a plan for the evening. We're going into Ephesians 1, uh, some of the texts that we read on Sunday. Then we're going to be going into two other texts, um, which I think are helpful. And then I'm going to spend some time at the end uh, speaking about three implications uh, for Christian living, which I think are good to know. Cool. So, would someone like to read Ephesians 1 for us? Any takers? No Bible here. Oof. Has to be ESV, yeah? Jokes. You got it. Yeah, Daniel will read it. Okay, there we go. Just verse 1 to 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself and sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's good. Cool. So <clears throat> that is the foundational text for this evening, but I want to... Before we get into kind of describing the different ideas in this text, I want us to discuss one question um, in groups. I'm not sure how many people in each group is going to work best, but um, basically I want us to evaluate our current understanding um, of the topic. 
Um, so the first question is, God, does God choose those who will be saved? And if so, on what basis does he make that choice? Um, and I really want to ask us... Yeah, yeah. It's going harder as we go. <laughs> I want to really encourage us that the point of this is that each person in the group articulates their view freely. So you have to try and resist the urge to smash down someone else's idea because you think they're wrong. Um, but it's really for us each to basically have an evaluation of our hearts and openly and freely speak about what we believe. Cool, guys. We will, we're going to get deeper into it so you'll discuss the same thing, basically. Just a bit more. Yeah. Just for some... Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> So the question was, does God choose those who will be saved? If so, on what basis does he make that choice? So um, in church history, the debate has never really been on whether God chooses or not. The main debate has been on the basis for that choosing. Um, God's election and predestination is a clear biblical uh, truth. So, and the primary debate on the basis is whether it's based on God or whether it's based on man. Whether the basis of his choosing is conditional on something, it's contingent on something, or if it's unconditional. Um, and for those of you that are kind of familiar with some of this discussion, you'll know that this, these ideas flow really um, deeply into other doctrines, such as the extent of man's depravity or the sufficiency of Christ's death. Um, but for, for tonight, I want to focus on this aspect uh, the basis of God's choosing. Choosing. So I'm going to read Ephesians 1 for us again and then just give us some ideas. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So historically there have been two kind of primary perspectives on the doctrine of uh, predestination, and each of these two perspectives have a different way of understanding uh, this passage as it re relates to pre predestination. Um, so the first perspective, a lot of you will know, is uh, the Calvinist view. Um, and this was kind of started by a guy called John Calvin. Um, but I would argue that its roots are in Augustinianism. So in St. Augustine, all the way back there. Um, that was the foundation of it. Um, and he lived around 15, between 1509 and 1564. So their view is that this text shows that God chooses us believers before the foundation of the world. But that this choice is unconditional. So notice there their basis. God chooses. The basis for, the, for his choosing is unconditional. It's not conditional on us. Um, it's not based on anything in us or anything we have done. But it's based on God's sovereign will. So it's not pointless. It's just not based on us, it's based on God, on the purpose of his will. Another translation describes this as God's kind, the kind intention of his will. 
So we see reference to this reading in John 6 verse 37 and some other texts. And I think um, Paul laid this out beautifully for us on Sunday. So I kind of felt like I didn't really have to say anything. Um, so the second perspective is the Arminian uh, view. And this was by uh, kind of started by a guy called Jacobus Arminius. Good name. If anyone is looking for one. Um, and I would then say that that idea has its roots in semi-Pelagianism. So you can kind of see why I'm brought that up at the beginning, role of man in salvation. These two views kind of go there. Um, he was born in 1560, died in 1609. So a lot of the time when you, <laughs> when you think the calvin Arminianism debate, you think that these two guys debated each other. But actually, uh, Jacobus was four years old when Calvin died. So <laughs> that would have been very impressive if he did. Um, so in this perspective... They agree that the text is teaching God's choosing of believers before they will be saved. So they both agree on that. God does choose. Um, However, they bring specific attention to the phrase in him. So this phrase is argued that it means that Christ was the chosen one. Um, They see reference in this in Isaiah 42. And that then believers participate in his chosenness because they are baptized into him when they believe So they also believe, and this is the key difference that we're going to speak about tonight, that God's choosing of believers is based on his foreknowledge of our choice to believe in Christ. Sorry, what did you say about the baptism thing? So um, it's basically one of the things that they indicate is that the chosenness, so God chooses, is actually speaking about Christ. And our chosenness is a chosenness as it relates to Christ because we're baptized into Christ. Okay, so us coming into Christ and being baptized into Christ then makes us chosen because he was chosen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got you. Um, So just to reinstate that, that God's choosing of believers is based on his foreknowledge of our choice to believe in Christ. And I think my thought would be that that's probably the dominant view in the room. Um, if we evaluate our own thoughts. So they further argue that verse 5, he predestined us to adoption, is not referring to God's choice of those who will be saved, but of God's choice to those who believe will ultimately be glorified. So in the initial view, we would see adoption as representing salvation. In this view, they see that reference to adoption as representing glorification. Um, So they argue that adoption as sons, that word refers to the glorification of believers. uh, And they see this in Romans 8 verse 23. There's a similar usage of that. So basically they're saying predestined us to adoption is not saying predestined us for salvation, but predestined those who are saved to glorification. That's their their understanding. Cool. So... um, as you can kind of see, with a brief, even just a kind of brief reading of Ephesians, we can clearly see the difference between these two viewpoints. One focuses the basis of predestining on the will of God, and other focuses, the other focuses the basis of the predestining on the will of man, or specifically God's foreknowledge of man's response. So um, we're going to now take a look at some other passages, which I think are quite helpful in kind of more fully describing the idea and then which will hopefully shed light uh, back onto Ephesians 1 and how we understand uh, God's predestining. So we're going to go to Romans 9. Um, I'll read it for us and then we're going to go into a question shortly afterwards. 
cool. Are you ready? Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring uh, are, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said: About this time next year I will return, and, she, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my might and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on on whoever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right of the clay to make out of the, out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as, even as, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, "You are my people," there they will be called sons of the living God. Cool. <laughs> Not much more to say. Okay. Um, so I want to speak on just briefly on the context of the two views and how they take Romans 9 because it's very interesting because even the understanding of the context that we're dealing with here differs. So um, the Calvinistic view, uh, as Paul asks in 9 to 11, whether the promises of God made to ethnic Israel will be fulfilled. So that's his basis. Will these promises to ethnic Israel will, will be fulfilled? And if God's promises to the Jews remain unfulfilled, how can Gentile Christians be sure that he will fulfill the great promises that came in Romans 8 just before that? So he's speaking to Jewish Christians and he's saying, they, they, he's saying that God is faithful and will be faithful to these promises, even if it looks like he isn't. 
um, to the Jewish nation. Nathan. Nathan. Um, I was actually going to call this evening um, predestination, but... The, um, so, um, Paul answers that God is faithful to his saving promises to Israel, in verse 6, and that he will ultimately save his people. And he bases this on that God's saving promises to Israel are irrevocable, unchangeable, because they depend on his word of promise and his electing grace. So you can trust the promises of God because they are ultimately dependent on him. Um, so that's the, the question is, how can we trust what you've just said to us if it looks like God's being unfaithful to the people of Israel? And he's saying, you can trust it because it depends on God's faithfulness on God himself. Uh, the Arminian perspective, Paul is writing to a Jewish audience. So notice there's a shift there already. He's interested in the broader nation of, of Israel. So he's not predominantly speaking about, about individuals. He's talking about nations. Um, it is apparent in the rest of the book, they argue that Paul's audience was Jewish. So then it should thus uh, apply here. And he is responding to a time when majority of believers were Gentiles. So in that period, a lot of, there were a lot of believing Gentiles, and they're thinking like, but didn't God promise all of this to the Israelites? Why does it look like God's promises have failed to the Jews, and all these Gentiles are being saved? So they would wonder if God's promises to the nation of Israel has failed. So you see the two difference in context there. So second question that we can discuss in our groups is as we read through Romans 9, and we can go back to that verse. I'll find it for you quickly, or you can find it, probably better than me. Um, starts at 11, I think. No, higher. Verse 9. Um, so as we read through Romans 9, what do you think Paul is wanting to portray with his reference to Jacob and Esau? Cool. Um, five minutes, probably. What do you think Paul is wanting to portray with his reference to Jacob and Esau? I'm going to try and be as quick as I can through my uh, content because I know the discussions is very important. So, um, question was, as we read Romans 9, what do you think Paul is wanting to portray with his reference to Jacob and Esau? So try and keep the context of the two views in mind when they give the answer to that question. So Calvinists', Calvinists view, even though many Jews have failed to believe, God's promise to them has not failed because there was never a promise that every Jewish person would be saved. Um, so you see this even in the reference to Ishmael and Isaac, that the promise went through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Well, I don't um, understand that. So... So I'm going to ask questions, right? No one else does. So. Depends on the question. <laughs> you really are to ask questions. Some questions I'll dodge, though. Um, so even though many Jews have failed to believe, so in that time they're seeing Jews yeah. who have failed to believe, and they're saying, no, but listen, God promised that all Jews would believe. So if some, fail, if some Jews have failed to believe, then God's promises must... He's not faithful to his promise. Okay. What Paul is saying... God never promised that all people of Israel, or all Jews, would believe or would be real sons of God. 
Okay. That's, 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 that's one of the points that he's making. Okay. So who's making? Paul's making. That Paul's making to, in a Calvinist perspective. Thank you for clarification. So they also see God's individual election here. So God choosing people. Um, and they ground that notion in chapter 9, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 16. Um, so they also understand this election of God not merely as corporal election. So it's not just saying that God chose Jacob and with Jacob God chose his descendants. So it's talking about a corporal election. It's talking about the corporal. Corporate. Uh, corporal, I would say. Corporate, either way. Corporate, lots of people are one person. Corporal means one. Both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm not very good at English, so you're probably right. Um, so they're not saying that. They, as an instance, the church. So there is a view that God chooses the bus that goes to heaven, but not all the individuals that go on that bus. It's that kind of idea. Um, as some hold to, but it's a personal, individual choice. So God's talking about Jacob as the person, Esau as the person. And then us as the um, person. Yeah, That's he's using that reference to tell us something. Um, so Jacob and Esau, both of Israel, and could not have been more in common. Um, R.C. Sproul says they were wombmates. Um, that's how much in common they had. Yet Paul indicated that God chose Jacob over Esau. So you can see the connection he's saying. He's saying God doesn't choose people on what they've done. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use two people that were like as, as alike as what you could get. They were twins um, and both from Israel. So God poured out his sovereign grace upon Jacob and passed over Esau. So this, this is an important point because often we read the, and God hated uh, Esau, and we think, jeez, it's God hating someone. But actually, it's a term that they use where they take a love and then they make a kind of equal opposite to that to make the point about how much the love is. It doesn't mean literally that God, that God hated Esau, um, but that he chose to pour out his love upon Jacob and pass over Esau. So he favored Jacob over Esau. That's the point that they're trying to make. So then with reference to chapter 9, verse 11, they argue that God did not choose Jacob on the basis of anything in Jacob's life, but to fulfill his purposes. Um, so I'm going to keep saying this. So the basis is not that there's no basis. The basis is that it's on God's will, not on what man would do or man's will. So God's choice was not random. We often think that it is... If it's not based on us, it must be random. You know, if my, if my will, isn't, will isn't at play, then it's just random. God's just going, pointing fingers and people are getting saved. Um, but it's not random. His, his, their saving is in view of God's purposes. So there's a bigger perfect purpose um, in view. Um, so then he's getting back to the context. Remember, we spoke about the context. So if we look back to the context of the text, Gentile Christians can... Thus be assured that God's promises will be fulfilled because his promises depend solely upon his will. Remember, that's, that's the point that he's trying to make. He's saying, here's the assurance. God's promises will be fulfilled because they don't depend on man. They depend on God and his sovereign will. Um, so, and then these two things that are in contra contrast in the text, works and calling, um, to them also show that salvation is in view here and not merely the historical destination of Israel. Yeah. Um, Arminian view <clears throat> on question two. So Paul 
Ikea is interested in nations, uh, not individuals. So there's the shift already. Um, and they use the reference to Genesis 25 verse 23, two nations are in your womb. So they're saying, yeah, look, God's talking about nations, not personal salvation. So they argue that in its original context, this passage refers to the offspring of Jacob and Esau. So remember, that's the key difference. He's saying, they're saying, it's, they're not talking, he's not actually talking about Jacob and Esau themselves, but he's using them as a representation of their descendants. Um, and uh, verse 13, loved and hated. This is a reference to Malachi 1, verse 2 to 3, um, which also refers to, na- to nations. Um, so a guy called F.F. Bruce, he says the prophecy relates not to the individuals Esau and Jacob, but to their descendants. It, re- it relates to the long periods during which the Edomites, uh, from the line of Esau, were in servitude to Israel and Judah. So they then argue that this passage then relates rather to service, not to salvation. So there's also a shift there. that they, they say Paul's actually talking about how God uses some for service. Um, and not necessarily salvation. And they, they reference um, passage of the text called the, old, the older will serve the younger. So they would have said that Esau may have been saved. Well, they're basically saying that that's not in view. That's not what Paul's oh, talking about. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, why, so why do they say that would be unjust? So We're going to get there. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm saying that's, in service in particular. Like that's the question. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what's a little bit confusing is they, they understand it as service, but they also have an argument for if it is salvation, this is what it would mean. Um, that's my understanding. I'm, I'm, also, I'm also a bit of a beginner here. So, um, so, this, so yeah, then they, then they go to the, to the salvation argument. This reference then also stresses the point that if that... Uh, Paul's Jewish audience could not base their service or salvation on their ancestry. So he's also making the point, if it is about salvation, he's talking predominantly about that um, not all Israel will be Israel, that kind of an argument. Not, Not really that God predestines some or the way that God chooses some, but the fact that not all Israel will be Israel. Um... So they say, if salvation is in view here, God is showing that God, that God chooses to, sh- to save those under the covenant of faith, or in his foreknowledge of that faith, rather than the covenant of law. So under the covenant of law, you would think that if you're born Jew, you'll be in the family of God. But under the covenant of faith, that is not the case. It's only those who have faith in God that are under his covenant. Um, so they argue that Paul is not sweeping every human response or act of faith off the table. He is rejecting the covenant of law. Cool. Next question. Uh, I think we'll do this question, then we can maybe take a short break, and then we'll come back. So, question three. Is there then injustice on God's part? That's what Paul says. So how would you respond to that question? And why do you think Paul includes this question? In your groups. <laughs> nice easy question. <laughs> cool. So I'm going to just make a few comments and then we'll break for coffee and then we'll come back. Um, 
So is there injustice on God's part? How would you respond? And why do you think Paul includes this? Um, so Calvinist's view is since God chose Jacob, since God chose Jacob instead of Esau before they were born and without regard for their works, this question naturally arises. I mean, when you're reading this, you probably think it before you even get to Paul saying it. Um, and this is our natural response. Well, but that means God's unjust. You know, the understanding of the eye of God, that means he's unjust. God's not fair. Um, but the reality is that God is just because no one deserves to be saved. The moment we think that God's justice means that he has to save everyone, then that isn't, um, or God isn't merciful because he has to save everyone. That, that is, we're not talking about mercy anymore um, because we've forgotten that actually we deserve um, to go to hell and God, by his mercy, rescues us. Um, the salvation of anyone at all is a divine act of God's mercy. And I think for me that's something that's so important that we have to keep in our minds when we think about this because we often want to point fingers and say, God, but that's unjust. If you don't save everyone, that's unjust. Or if you don't, if you don't give everyone the opportunity, that's unjust. And forget the divine act of mercy that it is to be saved. And Paul, again, described this powerfully for us on Sunday. Um, so salvation then is not ultimately based on human free will or effort. Not ultimately based on human free will on, or effort, but it depends entirely upon God's merciful will and grace. And that's not to say human free will or how we understand free will um, is kind of demolished. We can also have that discussion. Um, so... And what's very interesting is part of the question is, how would you respond to this? So if you think of Paul, he, he's anticipating this question in the people that he's speaking to. How do you think he should have responded? You would expect Paul to appeal to free will here to resolve yeah. the question if that was the answer to the question. Um, you would expect him to say, oh, no, no, God's not unjust because you chose by your free will. And that's why. Um, you weren't chosen or Jacob or Esau wasn't chosen. Um, so it's interesting to note that he doesn't go there. And I think that's for a specific reason. Um, instead, he insists on God's sovereign will. So he's saying, isn't God unjust? And he says, by no means, or of course not. And then begins to speak about the potter and the clay and talk about God's sovereign free will and what, it, what God has said to, to Moses on how he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And... Um, very important to notice that Paul offers no philosophical idea for how human responsibility and God's sovereignty come together. He doesn't go there. He doesn't try and make the, how these two things fit together. He merely just states that, the both, that they both are true. And that's often the kind of stance we come. You know, we come and say, well, I can't believe this until I know that these two are compatible. Otherwise, this, this can't be true. Paul doesn't stress about that. So Matt, can I just ask a question? Is he saying that Paul here speaks about, um, I don't quite know how you phrased it, you said about God's sovereign will and man's free choice, I think you call it. Human responsibility. Human responsibility, I think you said Paul refers to them both. Yeah. In this text, when you talk about uh, human's responsibility, where are you reading it that you're saying that Paul talks um, about? I can find it for you afterwards. I don't want to go into it now, <laughs> but I'll find it for you. Um, then the Armenian perspective. So, remember the context that we've been speaking about, how these two different views line up. So, um, 
they identify Paul's accusers. So we're saying, we're seeing Paul's accuser as someone who's saying, but God's unjust if salvation is through the sovereign will of God. They're saying Paul's accusers don't have that in mind um, because Paul's accusers were Jewish opponents and their problem with it um, is that they are demanding equal treatment for all Jewish people. Um, they don't have this, they're not, they're not um, sorry, they're not demanding equal treatment for all people like the accuser in the previous perspective was saying, but I thought God needs to treat everyone equal and you're saying that he's not, so God needs to be unjust. In this perspective, that's not their view. What they're saying is that the Jewish people are demanding the guarantee of salvation for every individual Israelite. So you notice the shift there. Their, their problem isn't all should be saved. Their problem is, but you said all Israel will be saved and now they aren't being saved, so there must be injustice on God's part. So they are demanding salvation according to ethnicity. Um, then as we go down into the potter analogy, um, they see this referring rather to God molding clay for service, not for salvation. So they've got back to this service analogy. Um, not depicting God's sovereign will with regards to salvation. So molding some clay for honorable use reference back to the people of Israel and the way that God had his hand upon them for service of the nations around them and some for dishonorable use. You'll see later on there's a reference to uh, Pharaoh and the way that God used Pharaoh for dishonorable use. Cool. Coffee break. Easy stuff, The fourth question that I was going to ask, it was a very quick one, so we're going to skip it, but I'll explain it. So read Romans 9, verse 16. It says, So then it depends not on human will, human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the question was going to be, what does it refer to? That's quite an easy one. Um, so the Calvinist view, this is kind of, by way of summary, God's unconditional election. It word refers to God's unconditional election. God's predestining then does not depend on the will or work of man, but on the mercy of God. Arminian perspective, God's choice, the it refers to God's choice to give salvation by grace to those who respond in faith, not by works or ethnicity. Okay, so we're going to go on to a different text. Um, and this text is, in a way, one of the key texts in the Arminian or foreknowledge view. And again, we're going to discuss it and then see the two views. So, Romans 8, verse 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, with that text in mind, is this text, we're going to discuss this in our groups, is this text not proof that God predestines on the basis of his foreknowledge of our responses of faith? In your groups. Romans 8 verse 29 to 30. Is this text not proof that God predestines on the basis of his foreknowledge of our responses of faith? 
So that's with specific reference to verse 28 and uh, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Yeah. Does he really understand? Because I think you you missed over the the, the clarification of it with regards to the whole point of predestination on, on on that one with regards to people making can this maybe clarify? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So the two the two points of view. I'm sorry, I prefer referring to Augustinianism and Semi-Pelagian. So Augustinian, the Augustinian viewpoint is that man can has got absolutely no point where he makes where, where, where it's his responsibility to choose God. God God elects elects man sovereignly. Um, and, and that's where the where, where, where the election takes place. The semi-Pelagianism or um, Arminian viewpoint is that God predetermines or predestines a man based on his insight of what that man will do with his life down his line that he will be the make the right choices and choose Christ so that's sort of the clarification of that's what you're yep. asking where this, where this scripture comes in yep. that's where this, this is a sort of a counterbalance mm. of those two yep. points does anyone understand what I'm yes. saying? Yes. thanks I yeah, appreciate it thanks Chris Cool, in your groups. Five minutes. So, the, again, we're going to try and understand. So, this is predominantly a kind of proof text for the Armenian view. Saying, look here, it says foreknew. He foreknew and then he predestined on that foreknowledge of what their response would be. Um, so, let's see. So, the Calvinist view on Romans 8 verse 29 to 30 um, they see this kind of section uh, fe- features a sequence known as the golden chain of salvation. Um, and this is the inviolable, kind of like unbreakable order in which God saves his people. So you'll notice at the end in verse 30, it speaks about those whom he predestined, he saves, he justifies, he glorifies um, the whole deal. Um, and although this chain doesn't specifically mention everything that God does in redeeming us, so you don't find the word sanctification specifically in this passage but the point is to say that salvation from start to finish is a work of God um, then we get to the uh, how they understand what it's speaking about where it says for new so first God foreknows his people verse 29 they argue that this does not mean that the that the Lord looks down in the corridors of time and foreknows something about us such as what our response will be when we hear the gospel. He does know these things, but these things are in a sense incidental. Um, so when they argue that when Paul says here he foreknew us, he's speaking of God's personal knowledge of us as persons. So he's, he's speaking of his decision, God's decision, to enter into a relationship with us and to set his love upon us. I mean, even if you think of um, references to Adam and Eve, where Adam knew Eve. We all know that wasn't just a head knowledge knowing. There was a relationship thing of knowing uh, that happened. Explain no, no. <laughs> all good. Next question. Um, 
So, find my place now. So, <laughs> so uh, to set his love on us, so that you'll even see that in chapter 9, verse 13. So, it is because he chose to love us that we will believe. Notice the ideas there are foreknew and then predestined. Um, so, only those who God chooses to love in this special way can be saved. And all those whom he has chosen to love will be saved. That should fill us with great hope. Um, R.C. Sproul comments on this and he says, We could reasonably translate this text, Romans 8 verse 29, Those whom he foreloved, uh, in brackets, those whom he knew in a personal, intimate, redemptive sense from all eternity he predestined. So the Lord's predestination of us ensures his call, ensures the call on us, and justification of us. And that, in turn, um, ensures our final glorification. So there, that's relating to this golden chain. They're saying that from start to finish, it's the work of the Lord and it's unbreakable. So we are entirely in God's hands from eternity past. He chose to love us. He declares us righteous in Christ and he adopts us. So those whom God justifies will be glorified. If we are in Christ now, we are in him forever. So St. Augustine uh, of Hippo, uh, so that's the guy from the start of the talk and um, who we were mentioning earlier. So he comments on this and says, God elected believers in order that they might believe, not because they already believed. Um, so God's choice of us precedes in every sense our choice of him. Um, if the Lord had not, choice, had not chosen us, we would never have chosen to believe in him. And because he chose to save his people without any view of their own merits or choices, his people will certainly believe. Sure. So his predestination of us means that we are his forever. Um, and I was uh, speaking about this a little bit earlier to Danny, but um, one of the issues personally that I had uh, early days with kind of the Calvinistic view was thinking like, but isn't that um, unjust because some people are left without hope to be saved? Uh, and as I've kind of thought about this more and more, it's my perspective shifted because if you take, for instance, I used this example earlier, uh, a person who, um, or another example, someone who's born into a Muslim family. Now, do you think there's an equal chance for them, if they were left to themselves, to respond to God, as a person who's grown up in a Christian family for their whole life and goes to church every Sunday, do you think left to themselves, there is a equal chance for their free wills to respond to the call of God? I would argue no. And for me, this fills me with such hope in saying that actually God can reach into any situation where someone is and rescue them out of that thing because they're not left to themselves. They aren't left to their own devices. He can sovereignly rescue them by his grace. Um, then we go on to the Armenian perspective. This one's quite short, um, obviously, because this is the, the text that they understand is, is supporting their view. So they believe this text and others like 1 Peter 1, verse 1 to 2, um, clearly show that the predestining of God is based on his foreknowledge of their positive response to his offer of salvation. So there's the key difference. They're saying, yes, that foreknew does mean that God is looking down into the corridors of time and sees that you will respond and then chooses you. Um, so now it's both 
clearly, from what my yeah. higher did, both of them are saying, God knows what we're going to do, but the one, Arminianism is saying, God knows what we're going to do, and that alters who he chooses. So he chooses yeah. those who he knows is going to choose him. So it actually yeah. alters the choice of God. Whereas Calvinism says, God knows what we're going to choose, but it's incidental. He's chosen us yeah. already. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Norman Geisler writes, God predestined in accord with his foreknowledge of our free choices. Um, so this guy also kind of goes into a little bit... Um, almost like above my pay grade kind of ideas where he speaks about how God doesn't choose on the basis of what you're going to do or your response, but his choice coincides with what you're going to do. Or So I don't really understand the difference, but um, I think there is a difference there. So if you're interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, he has a book. Um, I can share it with you. Chosen but free. I think that's what it's called. Um, so I, uh, I'm not going to go in depth on my view, but what I will say is for me, this has been quite a journey and it's been, uh, the phrase I thought of this week is it's a biblical conviction, not a philosophical conclusion. So yeah, to me, I, I've come to it by reading God's word and saying, this is what I feel like God is saying, not in the direction of saying, I want all the philosophical answers. These things need to line up. I need to understand how free will works. What is human responsibility? Once these things line up, then I'll believe in it. Um, so that's just my, my kind of personal testimony on this issue. Um, and yeah, I, hopefully, well, actually, hopefully not. You might not have um, thought what my view is, but I think I, I lie more on the Calvinistic uh, side. Just a slight bit. Cool. But I, I've gotten better. Like we did this at Life Group and I'm normally quite a strong Calvinist and I was going to like do this the one night. And I said to Mandy, oh, I think I'm ready. Like I'm quite open to other people's ideas and stuff like that. And then she said her view and then like I obviously gave her the wrong look. with my <laughs> And she was like, you're not ready. So I'm like, okay. So I postponed it a week. And then <laughs> Hopefully I was more ready after that week. Cool. So I am going to just hopefully quite quickly, it is getting late, run into three implications for Christian living um, of the Calvinistic view. And these are often things that are quite hard for us to understand. If you're saying that God is, you know, ultimately sovereign and he's in control of everything, what does this mean for why do we pray? What does this mean for uh, the Bible always saying, exhorting us to hold fast? Why hold fast if God is holding us fast? Why is it here we go. Um, so this is the first one. And this is also a very like basic look into it. So there's obviously a lot more depth that we can go into, but I really do hope that it's helpful. So the first one is, but does God not desire all to be saved? So you're saying God predestines some to be saved, but why does scripture teach that God desires all to be saved? So this is from 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 to 7. Would someone like to read that for us? Yeah, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, 
for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the truth faith to the Gentiles. Cool. So um, notice there, I think that translated spoke about everyone and all men. Um, the ESV speaks about all people. Um, so firstly, a few points on this text. So Paul begins by exhorting the congregation that he's uh, writing this to, to pray. And then he describes who they are to pray for, to pray for all people. So who are these all people? How do we understand the all people with this perspective? So the reformers, so reformers, that comes out of the Reformation, um, that is aligned with uh, August St. Augustine's view and the Calvinistic view. Um, so I'm, again, I'm making very broad strokes here. There's a lot of like nuances to it. Um, they argue that, that due to the delineation given in verse 2, so remember he speaks about all people and then he references kings. So he speaks about a specific type of person after he's referenced all people. They argue that this probably means all kinds of people. Um, and the Greek word for all people actually has this meaning attached to it as well that it uh, has this meaning of all kinds of people attached. So John Calvin writes, God desires for the salvation of all means there is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation. So firstly, Paul calls him to pray for all people that God would give them a peaceful and quiet life. Then he proceeds in verse 4 to call them to pray for salvation, noting that God is a saviour who desires all, to be, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So the question then is, is this passage teaching universalism? So that's the idea that all one day will be saved. You know, it's this kind of universal, we're all eventually going to get to heaven. Um, it clearly states that God wills for all to be saved. So if God's will is... Um, can't change, then surely that means that this text is saying that universalism is correct. But the short answer is no, because Scripture clearly teaches that not all will be saved. Um, you can see this in, for, for instance, Matthew 25, verse 31 to 56. So then, what does it mean? Um, could it mean, if you think of the Arminian view, that God wants it to happen, but human free will prevents it? So God wants all to be saved, but human free will prevents it because they reject God. So that God's will is then contingent on the free will of sinners. Um, so even though this is a widely held view, this is not what I think is happening in the text, and I don't believe this is what Paul is saying. Part of the, the key for me in understanding this is understanding that there are, um, there are, the Bible speaks about God's will in two different ways which I think will help us understand this. The first one is God's providential will. And this is God's sovereign plan for the world and for our lives. This is his will that is unchangeable. So we can think even of Ephesians 1 that we read earlier, Ephesians 1 um, to 11, where God works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
He works all things to the counsel of his will, so his will is unbroken because he's working all things according to that. Um, you can even think of Romans 8 verse 28 where God works all things for the good of those who, who believe. So he's working something there that is unbreakable. Um, but it's also important to note that the providential will of God is also largely hidden. We often don't know what the will of God is, his providential will or what um, will happen. And it's often only known in retrospect. Where you kind of see like, oh, okay, that's what God was doing there. I didn't know what he was doing, but that's what he was doing. Um, the second type is his moral will. And this is God's holiness and goodness. So you can think here of the commandments of God, you shall not steal. That's the moral will of God, but that will is broken every day. Um, or think of texts like 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you may abstain from sexual immorality. Again, people break this will all the time. So then God's will for every person on the planet um, is for him or her to repent and believe in the gospel. Some, by grace, will respond. So I found this text really helpful for me in understanding these ideas. Uh, it's Isaiah 53 verse 10. And it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So if you remember the text of Isaiah, the context of Isaiah 53 um, Isaiah is prophesying about Jesus, who's going to come one day. And here he says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So do we think that it pleased God? Think of his moral will. It pleased God when the Roman soldiers murdered Jesus. No, um, because they were defying God's moral will as they were doing that. But it was God's providential will and plan that his son should die for sinners. So we see the two walls at play there. His moral wall is saying this is murder and this isn't what I want, but his providential wall is saying, even though this hurts me, I know it's good. So R.C. Sproul says, if all people refers to every person without exception, then universalism is our conclusion. Only if God's desire to save is absolute. But the Lord desires one thing more than the salvation for all, his glory. Isaiah 48 verse 11. In one sense, God can truly want all who have ever lived to be saved. However, this desire always defers to his will to glorify himself. The will in view when the Bible says his will is always done. Cool. So I hope that was helpful in some way. Um, <clears throat> the second question is, if God is sovereign, then why pray? Um, this has been a question that I've had all the time because I've always believed in the sovereignty of God and often um, because of my faults, it's just resulted in kind of prayerlessness in my life. I'm kind of just like, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it. It doesn't really matter what I do. Um, that's why I was so shocked at how nervous I was um, today. <laughs> um, so firstly, <laughs> um, God commands us to. Why pray? The Bible says you should. Um, and this doesn't kind of help our modern minds because we want to kind of, we want to hold something out, study it, understand it. And once we've understood it, hold it as truth. We don't like something that says two things that seem kind of opposite. Um, but the Bible clearly instructs us to pray. Um, for instance, John 15 verse 7. The second point is, if we don't pray, we may not receive. 
And this is even kind of more hard to understand if you have God's sovereignty in perspective. Um, but in James 4 verse 2, the Bible, Bible clearly warns us that if we do not ask for what we want, we may not receive it. So I want us to really let this thing sink in. And this is something that I still haven't realized and I'm still trying to learn. Is that there is a real causal connection between our asking and God's giving. So, you know, when we're understanding the sovereignty of God, it mustn't be um, at the detriment of our understanding that prayer matters and that there's a causal impact. There's a difference that prayer makes um, and that our asking impacts God's giving. So this is what it says in James. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So in conclusion, ask. Otherwise, if you fail to ask, you may fail to receive. Um, there it is, you know, believe it and do it, even if we don't necessarily understand it. Thirdly, I add one to that. Yep. Something that's helped me so much with this prayerlessness and sovereignty of God is to, to think about, sometimes we think about prayer only as God doing something mm. rather than the doing being us being changed. Yeah. So sometimes God, God commands us to pray is more to do with Paul being changed because I learn how to pray and because I'm praying and speaking yeah. to God and he's doing a huge work in my heart as I pray more than actually like I'm just so we speak. I don't know if I mean getting it across but we sometimes see prayers like only asking God Yeah. and if we don't pray then God's not going to do it and we forget mm-hmm. that actually in the prayer itself God is deeply working in his people. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Can I also add to that? I think there's another thing in prayer that also happens. God deeply desires a relationship with us. Yeah. So, so if we, whether it be in praise or in asking him for something, he wants a relationship. So it's like sitting with your own children on your lap. Mm. If the child doesn't understand something, if he comes and shares it with you as a parent, mm. it, it's just sitting with that child and his yeah. not understanding is a great moment yeah. in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's both good for us and for God to yeah. sit there. Can, yeah. I, can I just get a chip there that's helping me exactly on that? Prayer is not primarily transactional but relational. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great thing. the transactional thing, it's like I ask God gives yeah. pretty sovereign, but does he give? But no, actually it's it's primarily to yeah. conversation. Yeah. Cool. Um, this one is something sometimes also hard for us to understand. God sovereignly plans our prayers. So we kind of think that God sovereignly plans all these events, but everything in between is wouldn't matter. Or you know, um, so let's let's see what the text says. So and this is kind of part of the reason that number two is valid, um, that there's a causal effect that our prayers have on God giving. Um, so John Piper says God plans our prayers just as surely as He plans the events that He performs in answer to our prayers. So God plans our prayers just as surely as he plans the events that he performs in answer to our prayers. Um, this text, again, was really helpful. You know, when we, we're trying to discuss these ideas, we kind of, they kind of hang in the air. But as soon as you ground them in Scripture or see them happen in Scripture, it makes a huge difference. Um, so let's look, for instance, at Jesus' prayer for Peter, you know, when Jesus prayed for Peter. And remember that he prays like this 
before Peter denied him, um, and which he told Peter he would do, that he would deny him. This is before that happened. Um, so Luke 22, verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. So God then planned for Peter to deny Jesus. This is why Jesus said that he would deny him. And God planned that Jesus would pray for Peter's repentance. <laughs> and God planned in answer to that prayer to cause Peter to repent. So notice that Jesus, Jesus says that he's praying for him to repent, but then declares that he will repent. So he already knew that, that Peter was going to repent, but that didn't stop him from praying. Um, so it then doesn't make sense to say that God's will for Peter is going to happen no matter what Jesus prays, when in fact Jesus' prayer was part of what God willed. That makes sense. So God plans the world, and part of his planning for the world in the is the praying of his people for what he plans to do. And this for me was really beautiful, that in prayer God is granting us the dignity of joining with him in glorifying himself as part of the cause of all that he does. Cool, sorry, it's very late. Last one. Okay, if God sovereignly chooses us for salvation and promises to preserve us to the end, why does the Bible exhort us to hold fast and to continue in the faith? So that's the question. If God's holding us fast, why tell us to hold fast if we are being held fast? Uh, I don't know if you asked that question. I have. Um, so this is seen in texts like Hebrews 6, verse 17 to 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So that's the question. If our holding fast was obtained and irrevocably secured by the blood of Jesus, which it was, why does God tell us to hold fast? Um, so I've got a few points from, from John Piper. He says, What Christ bought for us when he died was not the freedom from having to hold fast, but the enabling power to hold fast. What he bought was not the nullification of our wills, so not that our wills don't matter, as though we didn't have to hold fast, but the empowering of our wills so that we want to hold fast. What he bought was not the cancelling of the commandment to hold fast, but the fulfillment of the commandment to hold fast. What he bought was not the end of exhortation, but the triumph of exhortation. So we can see this in passages like Philippians 3 verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So it is not foolishness, it is the gospel to tell a sinner to do what only Christ can enable him to do. To hope in God. Um, and then we see other references where these exhortations to hold fast are related to the proof of the new life within us. Uh, an example there is Hebrews 3 verse 14, where it speaks about how 
For we have come, past tense, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Um, this for me is really important because I think the question often comes like, you know, am I, was, am I then predestined? Like, what does this all mean? Am I elected? Am I one of the chosen of God? And I think what a, a beautiful way to, to see that is that the Bible often talk, talks about that you'll see the fruit. I mean, if you're seeing fruits in your life that you're a changed person from what you used to be, you know that you're in the family of God, that God's done something in your heart, changed your heart, mm-hmm. um, and has drawn you towards himself. So I really want to yeah, fool you guys with hope um, through that. So I'm done. Um, it's late, so we can probably pray. And cool. If you guys do have other questions, um, feel free. I don't have answers, many answers. So I'll probably tell you I don't know. Um, but yeah, and I, and I really want to urge you, if there are doubts in your heart, like, what the heck? I've never heard this before. What does this mean? Am I even a Christian? Um, I hate my life now. Like, honestly, it, it gets hectic. And, um, but I really want you to reach out. Don't, don't spiral. Don't, um, don't feel bad coming forward. I think most people struggle with this, so we really do want to help you. Cool. I'll pray. Father God, we thank you for this evening. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity um, to speak about you and your will and your sovereignty and your goodness and your love and your grace. And I really just want to ask, Father God, that as our hearts um, cry out if we don't understand this or our hearts cry out if we feel like you're being unjust or we're being robbed of our free will or uh, any of those kind of thoughts Lord God I really want to pray that your love and your grace would would pour out into our hearts Jesus I in my perspective Lord that is kind of the only way that these things really sink home is when we are just secured in your love and in your goodness and happy and filled with joy that our salvation depends solely upon your mercy and your grace that you can reach into any situation and pull someone out of that and hold them tight until you meet with them in the redeemed um, heaven and earth so we just thank you father for that king and i pray that these texts um as we kind of dive deeper into them in our own spaces that you would fill us with such hope father god and such security in your faithfulness and in your goodness. In your name, amen. Amen. Awesome, guys. Um, can I just close with one exhortation? Thanks, Nate. That was incredible, bro. You are so well prepared. It's amazing. It's inspiring. Um, there's a lot that we don't know in Scripture, but there's a lot that we do. And so I just want to encourage us as we leave, like Nate was saying, if there's like a little bit of shaky ground, if you're on this specific topic, there is a lot of stuff that is around around reaching out to others around the goodness and love of God. There's some stuff we don't know. And some of the stuff we're working on for the rest of our, our faith journey is like one day we get to heaven and we're like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's what it was about. Yeah. But it doesn't stop us from grappling with stuff and, and having a biblical conviction, even though philosophically we might not really get it. So just an encouragement to continue the conversation from here and how cool that we get to have a God who's revealed himself in his word. We don't have to like and like wander around and kind of make up our own scriptures. Awesome guys, have a lucky evening. Travel safely.